This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. It's time for football. Just for kicks on BFM 89.9. Hello and welcome to Just for Kicks with myself, Cam Ruslan, on a crazy weekend of football, both in the Premier League, the English Premier League, and here in Malaysia, which we will get to later. But first, let's meet our pundits. We have Sean Malhotra, a happy Sean Malhotra. Yeah, it's a rare feeling to have nowadays. But yeah, I'm, I'm a lot happier than I was last week, that's for sure. Yeah. And and even happier, Asran Rosane. Hi, everyone. I'm still buzzing, to be honest. Still buzzing. And an equally happy and as seen on TV, Kishnan Sundaresan. I mean, a, a crazy weekend would be an understatement. What an astonishing weekend of football, both domestically and, and internationally. Crazy, crazy stuff. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to finding out about the Malaysian uh, situation, but we'll come to that later. Let's start with, uh, I'm tempted to not go to Azran. Uh, Newcastle 1, Liverpool 2, but okay, let's go to Azran. Azran Rosane, <laughs> uh, new, uh, Liverpool fan, because about to say Newcastle. Uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold cannot defend. And uh, but Liverpool went down to two men. It looked like Newcastle were going to win, and then a comeback from Liverpool. And strangely enough, that man Nunes. Exactly. Oh dear me. What else can I say as a Liverpool fan? An absolutely heroic display by the whole team. Even Klopp mentioned that it was something that he's never experienced before. Even though I think he just broke the record as a manager who's brought in substitute to Scott Winners in the 90th minute or later. However, as you put it just now, as for recent Liverpool defensive fashion, we had our sloppy moments early with Trent being booked. In fact, he could have been booked again shortly after. There was a dangerous back pass from Salah to Trent. Obviously, Trent couldn't control it with his left foot, putting the dangerous Anthony Gordon through on goal, who finished with a plum, of course. Then a few minutes later, that challenge from Van Dijk. Was it actually a red card, though? I'm not so sure myself. Well, another arguable one, of course. Uh, just move on, move on. I'm not, I'm not listening <laughs> yeah. to you. Anyway, yeah. we hope that it's going to be overturned, <laughs> like McAllister's red card, you know? But anyway, going down to 10 men actually galvanised Liverpool. Because personally, I think Newcastle played really well, but the red card gave Liverpool some sort of a siege mentality. And Trent, who had the captain's armband, played more like a traditional right back. I mean, and he staying back all the time, and he played his utmost best defending against the Moradine Gordon. Obviously, he had a yellow card in hand, so he had to ensure that he did not get the red card, of course. But yeah, man, full credit to the team. Robbo had to face both Trippi and Almiron on that side. Allison, my goodness me, with that fantastic save to deny Almiron a few minutes after giving uh, down to 10 men, as well as there was a nice long staff backhill flick at the end, if we realise it. The midfield trio of Endo, McAllister, Zobosly were compact and Klopp's subs were spot on. Harvey Elliott came on, fantastic, played fantastic. The new boy Kwanza played well. Jota and of course Darwin Nunes. Being on the bench, I think, gave him this fire, you know? And the two goals he scored were magnificent finishes against a top keeping pool. Yeah. After great run. So, yeah, absolutely. Tough for as I as I put uh, Asran on mute and he'll just carry on talking. <laughs> uh, Sean, bring him down to earth. It was uh, no, I, I mean I don't know if you can bring him down to earth. Maybe I was bringing him down to earth for Newcastle. It was uh, it was a comeuppance for them. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the game as a whole, they should not be losing this game. They had opportunities by the plenty to win the game. Like Asran said earlier, Alisson pulled off an outstanding save against Miguel Almoron. But that wasn't just it. When Javi Barnes was on, he had the chance to square it. Didn't square it. 
you know, Newcastle had their opportunities and they were undone by their own mistakes. I admit Liverpool came back into it big time, you know, going down to 10 men and losing Virgil van Dijk. Of all people that you could lose in defence, you lost the man, the captain. It wasn't a game managed well by Eddie Howe, which is a very surprising thing for me to say because if you think about teams that manage their leads well and, and frustrate other teams, Newcastle's that team. They didn't do it well. They got punished for it twice. Darwin Nunes with two finishes that were quite identical, to yeah. be very honest. They looked the same. And maybe this is what you know Darwin Nunes needed to, to cement a starting position in Liverpool. But yeah, I think... Eddie Howe is going to lament the fact that they just really didn't solidify their lead at all. Okay, very quickly then. I don't want to. I don't want to stay on this show of hands or just yes or no. Was that a red card in your opinion for Virgil Van Dyke? Nah, uh, Yeah, no. Nah, it, it it wasn't for me. Uh, it was. I, I know there's all these talks about denial of goal scoring opportunity and all that, but the laws keep getting revised. That I'm not so sure what's the latest version anymore because I remember reading something that says that uh, a denial of goal scoring opportunity only applies if there is a uh, there is a zero intent to play the ball. That is just a blatant tackle on the man. In this case, I agree. He did catch the man. But the intent was to get the ball and he did eventually get the ball. So whilst I would have you know, probably called it a foul or perhaps even a yellow for it to be a straight rate, I disagree. Uh, but obviously, it's going to go back and forth. And I'm with you, Cam. I think there's no point talking about this uh, anymore because it, it's really, really boring. There's so many better things to talk about in that game besides just that red card. Right. So, Azran, I'll skip through you because obviously you don't think it's a red card. Uh, <laughs> you would ha- never never say anything bad about Virgil van Dijk. And uh, Sean? I don't think it was a red card, but I think the it won't get upheld. I mean, it won't get overturned because of his reaction towards the referee, which mm. they have clamped down that on. That I agree, yeah. But I don't think he'll, he'll get that ban rescinded. Right. Okay, uh, Azran, I'm going to turn to you now. Brighton 1, West Ham 3. And this was a big surprise. High-flying Brighton brought down to earth by West Ham, who had been good. And they scored counter-attacking football. It was like, who's this David Moyes fellow? Ward Prowse, Antonio and Bowen. I think they've got some goals in them this season. Definitely. Uh, Again, to be fair, Brighton did continue to play. They they played well. Uh, They controlled possession at the start. I think in typical fashion, Mitoma was roaming down the wing. But, you know, we talk about a number of signings this season. But somehow James Ward-Prowse sort of fell under the radar. But what a signing he's been from for West Ham, hasn't he? I mean, he's mm-hmm. scored a couple of goals, provides assists, set piece we know that he's great at. And now they've just signed, what, Mohamed Kudus? Ah, man, great things going to come from West Ham as well. What a win for West Ham. Uh, unfortunate for Brighton, but again, I still see Brighton playing the same way of football, playing in Europe, and going, as I mentioned, above Chelsea at the end of the season. Pish, I don't know if you were, as a Manchester United fan, back in the day when David Moyes was the manager, I don't know if you were a Moyes out uh, guy, but given, let's say, let's give some praise for David Moyes. Oh, I, I think it's a lot more than just praise. David Moyes is a, is a cultural icon as we speak right now, because one of the things that is that is becoming really boring and predictable about football these days is that um, the wave of change that Pep Guardiola has brought into football has seen more and more teams attempt to play a similar style uh, where, I mean, they might not be able to dominate possession like a Man City would do, but they still play with the JDP style, Juego de Posicion, which is positional football. And what I love about David Moyes is he's one of the few managers in the Premier League, one of the few managers in top flight football who does not care, who does not 
you know, really does not bother with any of this uh, footballing trends or, or tactical ideologies that is taking over the space. He doesn't care. He just wants chaos and he brings it to the pitch. And I love it because it's it, West Ham and David Moyes are almost serving the role as, as uh, you know, counterculture proponents as, as we speak right now. <laughs> and it's absolutely brilliant to see. And, and that's exactly uh, what happened in that game against Brighton because Brighton are a team that are so good at, at, at pressing opponents, at forcing mistakes. But in this game, there were multiple moments where you just looked at West Ham and, and, and realised that, hang on a minute, these guys are not bothered. They're not going to be baited into pushing further up front. They're not going to be baited into you know changing their style of play on the day. They're just going to do what they, all, what they always do, what they do really, really well, which is sit deep, defend in a block, and really just attack... Um, on on the counter in transitions, and that's what happened. They had barely twenty percent ball possession, and they scored three goals. And that's absolutely brilliant. It's it's so so good to see in a world in which everyone is trying to copy Pep Guardiola. And Sean, I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you because after the break, we're coming back to discuss Manchester United and their heroic victory over the mighty Nottingham Forest here on Just for Kicks on BFM eighty nine point nine. More football when we come back. Just for Kicks on BFM 89.9. Just for Kicks on BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself and Sean and Kishanan and Asran. And now, Sean, uh, Manchester United 3, Nottingham Forest 2. Nottingham Forest were two goals up in less than four minutes. Uh, you must have been, I guess you wanted to go to bed or something, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> what, what happened? There was a turnaround. It, I mean, you're, are you happy? It, this was Fergie, kind of like fight back. You've got to talk about that first five minutes first. I can think you can ask any United fan, you can ask Kish about this. We're not surprised by what happened. There were no signs from the last two weeks to suggest that United were going to start strong. That's exactly what happened. One long ball over the top, right? From People are calling it Marcus Rashford's mistake. I don't think it's Marcus Rashford's mistake. You wouldn't want him of all people to be in that position. Where's the defence? You get punished for it. Second goal, easy thing again. The defence should be jumping to fight for the header. Willy Boli doesn't even expect the ball to be hitting him. It hits him and it goes in. wasn't a reactionary thing. But that fight back, and I think the man that deserves the most credit for me for that fight back is Bruno Fernandes. There was so much talk in the media in the last two weeks about him being a horrible leader, not a good captain. That was a captain's performance. Take away the assist that he had, take away the penalty goal that he had. There was a play in, I think it was the the first half, where he actually fought for two challenges back-to-back within five seconds. That is a captain's performance. That made me prouder than more than anything. The fight back was amazing. The goals were great. I think the second goal especially, it was straight off the, the trading pitch. When it happened and Bruno put the ball across, I was thinking, what's going on here? And then the play that followed it, I was like, that's brilliant. That's Eric Ramsey, you know, United set-piece coach in a nutshell right there. That's paying dividends. But of course, being United, you know, over the weekend, everyone's going to talk about Marcus Rashford diving and that Joe Worrell shouldn't have been sent off. Every week, it's a something to talk about United in a negative spectrum. But for me... That performance coming back, United needed it, especially going into the weekend against Arsenal next. You needed a performance like this. As a United fan, you can only hope this galvanizes them because the Arsenal game is going to be a whole different ball game. It's going to be a lot harder. Arsenal is going to be having most of the possession. United needed this, but the mistakes that are happening in the team need to be questioned. These are things that shouldn't be happening. Do you agree with that? It's a, it's a good comeback, rallying, wake-up call, or... 
is it just yet another kind of set of alarm bells ringing? I think the alarm bells were ringing in the first two games already. Um, so I, I agree with Sean. I, I, there was nothing to be surprised about the way in which they went to nil down early on. I was watching it with with a bunch of United fans and everyone had the same look on their face that, you know, we're not surprised at all. But the most important part was I was waiting to see how they would respond to that because this United side has developed a, a pattern of whenever they're hit with a setback, they tend to just collapse and crumble and, and you know, go and abandon their principles and styles of play and demands from Eric Ten Hag. But to their credit, this time around, they got stuck to it. Uh, led by Bruno Fernandes, I, I agree with Sean. He was really at the heart of everything. And they kept on playing. They, they kept on pushing. They got uh, the, the first goal and then, you know, eventually got the second and the third. So by the time the first goal went in, I think most United fans were sort of feeling like, I think a comeback is possible here because we're not abandoning the principles. We're not just playing hero ball. Everyone is trying to score goals left, right, left, right, centre. No, that wasn't the case. Everyone was sticking to the patterns of play. And I think that was the most encouraging part for me that despite the setback, the team did not collapse. Okay. And speaking of teams that often collapse under pressure, uh, Azran, another crazy match in a crazy weekend. Arsenal 2, Fulham 2. Saka was involved in everything good and bad. It was crazy, and I'm not sure about Arsenal. I think similarly. I, I think I've said this before in the past few weeks. The bane in this Arsenal team is probably its back line now. Let's see if Arteta can can settle it down. Obviously, they've been unlucky, obviously, with the long-term injury to Jurin Timber. Um, yeah, uh, again, this was a game that they should challenge us to the champions, right? Obviously, how they lost it last year and this year, they're expected to, again, challenge for the title. Um they conceded very, very early. Uh, I would say it was a defensive lapse. And then after going so hard to get back in front to 2-1, again, unfortunately, uh, another defensive lapse uh, cost them the, the equaliser. So all in all, if they don't shore their back line up, uh, I think it's going to be tough for them because I don't see them as marauding you know, once upon a time, we had the Galacticos who scored more than they conceded, right? And we spoke about how Liverpool is probably playing a bit like that. But this this Arsenal isn't really attacking on all cylinders. Uh, but yet, how they've conceded this year, Forrest, I know one, it was one goal. They they were they scraped the win. Um, uh, unfortunately, against for them, against Fulham, they couldn't. They, so uh, if they don't sort this out, it's going to be difficult for them to challenge for the title this season. Yeah, Sean, what do you think about Arsenal's? I mean, sorry, Fulham fans. There are Fulham fans, um, but sorry, Fulham fans. But uh, the, what do you think about Arsenal's beginning of their season? I don't think it's gone necessarily how they wanted it to go. I mean, losing Julian Timber after the first game is is something they really didn't account for. The part that, that really strikes me and that confuses me a little bit about Ateta is that back line of Zinchenko, Saliba, Gabriel and uh, Ben White last season served them so well. If they're not fit, I totally understand. But you have Ben White, you have Gabriel, you have Zinchenko and yet you start Thomas Partey on the right, you start Kiwio on the left. It just doesn't make sense to me. That midfield as it is is something that's going to be a work in progress, right? Declan Rice is... Obviously, everyone's going to be talking about his price tag and how he needs to perform immediately and all those kind of things. But when you're changing your back line, which is an unfamiliar back line, and your midfield is something that's not you know perfect yet with Kai Havertz in there as well, who again, I'm going to emphasize, I do not understand his role in that Arsenal team just yet. 
But you have two dysfunctionalities right now. You have the midfield and the defense. When in reality, it should have just been the midfield that needed time to gel. So that is something they need to figure out. It's going to take time. But I think the likes of Gabriel, Ben White and Zinchenko have to be part of that back four. You can't go back to putting Thomas Partey on the right and putting Kiwio on the left. It just makes no sense to me. And not starting with your two strongest centre-halves in Gabriel and Saliba. So I think that's where I think Ateta will get it right. But he needs the time to get it right with you know all these big signings in. Kai Havertz is going to have the the weight of expectations to perform with the price tag that he's come into Arsenal as well. But I think the person that deserves a lot of credit, you know, you look at the Arsenal game, there's so many things you could call them out for. But the person that I'm impressed by is you beat him down, but he keeps coming back, and that's Eddie Nketiah. The guy is uh, he's he's something else every time he comes off the bench. The guy just knows how to put the ball at the back of the net. So I think he's their their hidden you know, gem at the moment in that team. Uh, yeah. Um, Kish, uh, Kai Havertz, I don't know how, how much, he cost a lot, didn't he? Um, and there were others going around costing considerably less. Uh, I, I mean, I think I could see them finishing below West Ham, certainly below Spurs. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I, I Can mean, you see it turning around? Yeah, I, I wouldn't hit the panic button just yet because um, we saw that when when Arteta reverted back to the familiar structure with familiar faces on the pitch, um, they played so much better. Um, I think what's what I don't get about Mikel Arteta is the tinkering. Um, I, I agree with Sean. Is the unnecessary tinkering that he's doing with the style of play, the, the defensive setup, the inclusion of Kai Havertz as a number eight at the expense of perhaps someone else. I have a bit of an issue with that. I think Kai Havertz is is much better as a second striker. If you look at his best spell, whether during his Bayer Leverkusen days or even um, when he was at his peak with Chelsea, it was always when he was playing just off the striker as a second striker. Someone who's given the the room to sort of roam around. There is a player that is probably two levels above him, but with a similar mould like him. And that's Thomas Muller. And they call him the Raum Deuter in, in German football, uh, which essentially translates to the interpreter of space. And Kai Havertz is someone similar. He's, if you allow him to be Raum Deuter, if you allow him to just roam around and play off the shoulder of someone else, then you get the best version of him. What I'm not a fan of is utilizing him in a three-man midfield where he's got defensive responsibilities, where he's got positional responsibilities. And that's where... I start to have a bit of a problem in terms of how they, they use Kai Harvard. So I wouldn't hit the panic button yet because there's enough quality in this team to be able to, you know, definitely at least finish the Champions League. So uh, it just it, it just goes back to Arteta and how he's going to press the, the reset button on the team setup in the next few weeks. Uh, we've been quite hard on uh, Arsenal. It's quite possible that Arsenal fans and Arteta and everybody are very happy with the performance against Fulham. I don't know. Um, hey, Azran. We're going to have to now do uh, a compulsory Pep Guardiola moment because he's been in charge of Manchester City for 269 games. And this game against Sheffield United was his his 200th victory. Not just draw, a victory. Quite remarkable. But um, on, on the Friday show, Bob Holmes said that he reckoned that Sheffield United were in a chance to get a point out of this one and i was like bob what do you know about football for goodness <laughs> sakes <laughs> <laughs> and he was nearly right it was uh another of the weekend's crazy games that guy harland completely overrated can't score i don't know it was uh okay i'm looking for 
for problems for Man City. That back heel by, by Kyle Walker in the in his penalty box, absolute arrogance. Is that an Achilles heel for Man City? I would like to think so. Again, as you mentioned, Bob was right for a couple of minutes. We, As expected, though, City dominated the game. And Guardiola, with his 200 games, he's dominated, I would imagine, 75% of those games. Um, and Haaland was unlucky. Uh, he had a penalty that hit the post. Uh, and finally, he got his good goal. But that really arrogant, overconfident, unnecessary back heel from Walker. So that gave the Blades a chance. But unfortunately for them, they also had their atrocious defending moment. It was very sloppy and lazy because I think it was unfair a bit to the goalkeeper because I believe West Fotheringham, uh, he did very, very well keeping uh, Manchester City at bay. Uh, but unfortunately, that again, another moment of sloppiness from, from uh, Sheffield United uh, allowed Man City to get back. And for me, this, this particular player, uh, Rodri, not just because he scored, but if you see his stats as well, uh, minutes per game has risen season after season. And I think this year he's definitely one of the first names on Guardiola's team sheet. We don't, I mean, I we rarely see, see him get rotated as well. He can defend, he can attack, and he pops up with critical goals, especially this season. So again, lucky for City, uh, unlucky for Sheffield United. For three minutes, they had a chance to get a point. And Sean, uh, as a Manchester United fan, um, you'll You'll like this because I'm going to invite you now to say nice things about Pep Guardiola and Man City. Because, yes, you could be the richest, well, now I think second richest club in the world, but you have to have some gift to be able to to create such a dominating team. And and there's no let-up. There's not many ways you can describe Pep that's not already been described. You know, he is, without question, the best coach in football currently. And he has been for the last 10, 15 years probably. But the one thing that he does that I don't think many managers can do, and now everyone can say that, oh, because he spends a lot of money, blah, blah, blah. But to get the team to consistently play a certain way, that is something that is extremely difficult. And to play at the intensity that they do, this is not the best iteration of City yet. You know, the, the three games they've played in the league so far, they've not been at their best. And that's still, you know, that's a testament to them. They've grinded out these wins, winning ugly. When City go back to, to you know, manhandling teams will be talking about, wow, how did Pep get them to be playing at this intensity again? So it's a testament to them. Play ugly, win ugly. And when they get back to their best, they'll be dominating again. Yeah. And they're now top of the table. And who's to say that they won't stay there till the end of the season? Um, they managed to knock the mighty West Ham off the top. <laughs> uh, well, we take a break. And in a moment, I'm going to be asking uh, Keish about uh, the now mighty Tottenham Hotspur here on Just for Kicks on BFM 89.9. More football when we come back. Just for Kicks on BFM 89.9. Just for Kicks on BFM 89.9. And we're back with Sean Malhotra, Asran Rosane, and now Kishnan Sundaresan. It was uh, Bournemouth, to, uh, sorry, Bournemouth nil, Tottenham Hotspur two. I know it's only Bournemouth. I think that's a, it's a club that people, most people are sort of saying are going to be relegation certainties. But the performance by Tottenham Hotspur under Ange Postcoglu, it's um, it it showed dash and flair it was like the spurs of old 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 uh are you impressed i was actually very impressed with this game it, it was probably my favorite game of the weekend uh i mean bar the some of the stuff in local football that happened that was astonishing 
But uh, th- this was really good to watch. It happened just before the United game. Uh, it was really, really fun. Two of the brightest uh, managers, new fresh faces in the Premier League, uh, Andoni Raiola at Bournemouth and Ange Postacoglu at Spurs. Um, and it was really good. And Ange came out on top, but it does not mean that Bournemouth were completely swept aside because they played really good and caused uh, you know, a few problems for Spurs as well. And and Spurs had to really manage the game with with the slender lead before they were able to to double it up. Uh, the more I watch Angus Spurs, the more impressed um, I get. And it's not even surprising. It shouldn't surprise anyone because if you, if you watched uh, Ange Postacoglu's Celtic, you, you'll understand it. If you watched Ange Postacoglu's Yokohama F. Marinos, uh, it, it would have been completely understandable. Uh, one of the one of the guys that appeared on your on the Friday show camp, Gigi, um, he played under Ange before at at at, at International level with Australia. And he waxes lyrical about Ange's impact and how progressive he already was years ago with the Australian national team. So he's a really progressive uh, head coach. And it's really, really nice to see Spurs reaping the rewards from a stable, level-headed figure that is running the club at the moment. Because they've had some chaotic, divisive figures in the past from Jose Mourinho to Antonio Conte to Nuno Espirito Santo. And and now it feels like they're going through a period of healing at the moment with with Ange Postecoglou up there with the weight of Harry Kane's future off their shoulders. Uh, They can really just progress and move on. I think the one thing that will be a cause for concern, and I'm interested to see what, what Ange does about this, is Richarlison whether Ange continues to place his faith in him and that he will eventually turn around or if Spurs jump back into the market before the window closes. Because right now, Richarlison does not look good. Yeah, um, two two things come up from that. One is, did you watch Yokohama? Uh... I did, because oh I was God. a big fan of Tiraton Budmatan. Um, oh, everyone, okay. uh, everyone talks about Cancelo and, and so many of these other players being you know the pioneers of inverted fullback. Ange Postacoglu was already using a Thai player at left-back and inverting him into midfield at Yokohama F. Marinos. He was already so, so good to watch. And so I, I'm just genuinely, genuinely happy for Ange. Uh, okay, and point uh, two, which we'll follow up on a later date, is do you do anything other than just watch football, Keishan? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Can't put it that way, Cam. <laughs> <laughs> Asran, um, I, I am totally swept up by the Ange Postacoglu revolution. I think that he's so charismatic and... He just, I don't know, it's such a relief from the kind of Jose Mourinhoization of of what it is to be a, a, a football manager. But having watched this match, Kishnan kind of did point out that Bournemouth did have their chances. I think a better team could really damage Spurs. Well, they did play United the week before and still win. So, <laughs> well, whether United is a better team, I think so. Eh? Anyway, talking about Ange, what he does, I think, especially... Uh, looking at his past record, is he gets the best out of his players. I think there's one particular player that I think he should really like, Yves Bissouma. Last year was really a pale of his shadow self, former self. But this year, it's he's a new player. No, It's like such a solid, solid play. And the game against Bournemouth, I think he really controlled the midfield. In, uh, uh, the midfield. He can defend, he can attack. There's very good interplay between himself, Madison and so on. But I would agree to what Keith said. Richardson is unfortunately still not their top striker. They need to solve this issue because he can't score, unfortunately. Okay, I'm gonna move. I'm gonna move forward though uh, with uh, you, 
and Sean. Burnley won, Aston Villa three. Villas finally, uh, after a very bad start, um, pulling themselves together and looking pretty impressive. I want to ask, uh, I want you to tell me what Villa are doing right. and But also, isn't this a season where we have a really strong Premier League, I, especially in that kind of middle, upper middle section? Yeah, I mean, it's a testament to, you know, we always say that Coaches deserve time. They need, you know, time to get their style of play across, to get their players in. You need to understand Unai Emery came into the Aston Villa team and turned it around really quickly, you know. Then again, it's not much of a comparison when it's Steven Gerrard. But Unai Emery did it quite fast. Then he started bringing in players, you know, that some of us wouldn't think would be heading to Aston Villa. And that one person that I'm really looking at because I've been a huge fan of his for the last three, four years is Musa Diaby. I am so impressed by him and I'm genuinely envious and jealous at the fact that they got him because not only does he bring you flair, he brings you goals, he brings you assists, he's quick, he's strong, he has everything you need. And I think it's down that right side now, you have Musa Diaby and then further back, you have Matty Cash who, let's face it, last season didn't have the best of seasons for his own individual performances. But now you have an Aston Villa team barring the first game that's actually clicking together. That team from back to front looks really good for a, you would say, upper mid-table-ish team that is, you know, going to be playing European football. So it's good. He has a team that is in his image now, and I'm talking about Unai Emery, can perform at the level that he needs. They sometimes will have to grind out games. Sometimes they'll probably get smashed. But there are other games where they will look really good. And this was one of those games where I think if it wasn't for Trafford and goal, it could have been much, much worse if we're being very honest. I think Villa is going to be that wildcard team this season where there'll be games where you'll be like, wow, you're really impressed by them. And then other games where they'd look like they're just going to get absolutely mauled by any team. <laughs> uh, Kishnan, I know that you're an avid follower of the Belgian uh, Football League. So I have to say that I'm a bit disappointed by Burnley. I When I first saw them, I thought that they would cause a lot more trouble than they have. And it's now not looking so great for um, Vincent Company's team. Could, could you put your finger on what's what's wrong or what we could perhaps expect? I mean, if, if we go back to the first episode of the season when we recorded, um, I remember having this discussion about the biggest question mark surrounding teams like Burnley and Bournemouth, who have really progressive-minded head coaches, um, is how long do you stick to your principles before you, you know, approach pragmatism as a solution? Because right now, when you look at at, at Burnley, I mean, even against Villa, they dominate possession. Uh, they had a, a slightly larger chunk of possession, but unfortunately, they could not convert that into tangible goal-scoring opportunities. Um, and at the same time, when you look at the two individuals up front, they've got a, a South African striker. I can't seem to recall his name at the moment. A young boy, 22 years old. At the same time, they've also got Zaki Amduni from Switzerland, who is also, by the way, quite young. And then they have, you know, Jay Rodriguez, who's an experienced seasoned veteran on the bench. These three names, not a single one of them, you know, gives me any sort of confidence that they're going to get goals on a consistent basis. The one that I was surprised with was they had this incredible player called Nathan Teller who was on loan from Southampton last year in the championship. He was absolutely brilliant for them. And I was surprised that they did not, you know, put on a, a stronger uh, a bit to try and get him because he has now joined Bayer Leverkusen in Germany. But having, you know, more options up front would genuinely, genuinely help them. Because right now, 
they look good when they're passing the ball around they look good and and, and they they really look structured but my problem comes in the final third they don't seem to have you know a character that is big enough to convert half chances into immediate goals and and that's where company has got to be careful because sooner or later the pressure is going to start mounting and then his character and his willingness to to stick to his principle is going to be tested so relegation for burnley yeah Ash. not not so much relegation waking, yeah, sh- uh, shaking his head <laughs> yeah i wouldn't say relegation but but uh worrying times they need to act on something before the window closes Okay. Asran, speaking of acting before windows close, etc., etc., Everton nil, Wolves won. I was actually expecting more from Sean Dyche. I didn't expect pretty, but I expected some results. And it's been a woeful, awful start for Everton. And nothing about this match sort of made it seem like it could be otherwise. At home against a team, Wolves, well, Wolves played well in the first game against United, of course, but then they got absolutely hammered at home against Brighton. So it was a chance for Everton to get some points on the board, but they were awful, really. They can't score, they can't defend. To be fair, in the first half, they had some chances. Uh, we know that Danjuma had a chance to score when he had this one-on-one, but he fluffed it. And after that, I think, in the overall scheme of things, I believe Wolves did deserve their win. So clearly, Everton needs to shore up. They need to find good defenders. And I, I understand that they're in the midst of signing a striker called Beto, whether he'll mm. answer or not, time will tell. But Everton, this is, I think we've mentioned about the fact that it's a club that's mismanaged from top to bottom. Unfortunately for them, they're building a stadium at this point of time, so resources are tight. It's going to be a pity if they build a stadium and the first game of the stadium is going to be in the lower divisions. Uh, that's going to be a shame. But at this point of time, if they don't change, clearly they are... Because they've, again, for Everton, for the past couple of seasons, somehow they've always managed to avoid the drop. But I think, you know, you, when you you tempt fate more than often, uh, you might not be able to run from it. And if they don't do anything, it looks as if they are one of the teams that is going for the drop. Everton reminds me of like, you know, it, going to the dentist. You keep putting it off, putting it off, but eventually you got to go to the dentist. Uh, so, you know, that's about Everton and relegation. So uh, I'm going to save you up, Sean, because um, I want to save you up for Chelsea. But apologies for to Brentford fans and Crystal Palace fans. And well, once again, we don't talk about you. Um, and indeed, Wolverhampton Wanderers. One, one day we'll do an in-depth on them, maybe. So uh, let's move on. And in a moment here, we'll be coming back to also talk about the Malaysian game here on Just for Kicks on BFM 89.9. More football when we come back. Just for Kicks on BFM 89.9. Just for Kicks on BFM 89.9. Welcome back to part four of Just for Kicks. And we have Sean, Keish, and Azran. And now, Sean, Chelsea three, Luton Town nil. Luton Town finally play a game of football. Uh, whether or not they'll ever play uh, a home match <laughs> remains to be seen. But Chelsea are kind of getting it together. And uh, that man, Raheem Sterling, is looking like a, a savior. He looks like he's always been a Chelsea player. He looked like prime Raheem Sterling again. And the thing that I'm most impressed by is before the season even started Raheem Sterling said he will be Chelsea's top scorer he believes that he will be and now backing up what you say is a very big thing and that performance a lot of people will say oh it's only Luton but you have to play your best against whoever you're against right Raheem Sterling's first goal was sublime to me that was the goal of the weekend how he just got through the entire defense jinked through everyone and, and got a beautiful goal 
that is a player that looks like he's back to his you know usual self that we all know from his time at City and his time at Liverpool. But there's another player that I'm really impressed by that I didn't think would have a future at Chelsea, and that's Conor Gallagher. Because you look at the people that have come into Chelsea in that midfield-ish positions, right? You've got Romeo Lavia, you've got Caicedo, and you have Enzo who's already there. Conor Gallagher looked like he was on the way to Newcastle or West Ham. Now he's one of their best performers in that midfield. Not only does he retain possession well, he starts attacks well. He keeps it simple. You know, he does the simple things well, which I think that Chelsea midfield was struggling with for the longest time. They have players that can come in. Of course, Chelsea's team is massive with the amount of players they have. But you have players that can come in and do a job. Malo Gusto, who I really wanted at United last season, where there was rumours about him possibly joining United, has gone into that Chelsea team. Defensively, he may look shaky at times, but going forward, he looks comfortable. And that's exactly what Chelsea need when they were playing in the kind of positions that they're playing in. But it was an assured performance. I don't think we've seen the best from Caicedo yet, and I think we will eventually. And same goes for Romeo Lavia. And a good thing is Nicholas Jackson gets his first goal for Chelsea. Chelsea have one goal this season, and that is to finish in a European placing. Of course, you know, they want to be back in Champions League. I don't see that happening. But these are the kind of performances they need where last season, they would have probably dropped these kind of points. And the next team they have to play is Nottingham Forest, which is not going to be an easy game, evidently by what they did over the weekend. So good science for Poch. And uh, I'll give you 10 seconds to say something about Luton, Sean. I said it from the first episode. They're going down. I have no shadow of a doubt about it. No disrespect to them. But you need either experience or money being spent into that team to compete in the Premier League. They have none of that at the moment. Well, they're spending money on their stadium. You no longer have to walk through Mrs. Brown's uh, sitting room, <laughs> I think, to get in. So, uh, Kishnan, we're going to come now to the local game, to the Malaysian game. And, well, uh, something kind of monumental happened. Yeah, two things really. I I don't know how to classify it as good or bad because it always depends on how you look at it. But the first one that happened was on Friday night. Selangor uh, beat Kelantan 11-2. Um, and this comes not too long after Kelantan got absolutely smashed by JDT. I think it was 10-1 or 10-0. I can't remember the exact scoreline, but they conceded 10 goals against JDT. And they then went on to concede 11 goals uh, against Selangor. And it's crazier because... They initially got a surprising 2-0 lead and then they went on to concede 11 goals. Um, In games like this, uh, it's difficult to enjoy the goals because you could see the frustration uh, amongst the Kelantan players. And I don't think the Selangor boys particularly had a lot of fun as well, scoring the you know seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, <laughs> the, the, and 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 the saddest side was at full time. You could see the Kelantan goalkeeper breaking down into tears, um, mm. and you know you you had a whole bunch of Slango players that went over, consoled him, picked him up, and it's it's heartbreaking because for the mistakes that are being made by a man and a management, i.e. Kelantan as well as their owner, uh, Zam Saham, in case anyone is wondering mistakes made by a small group of people, the players and the fans are paying a very expensive price for it. There's a bigger picture discussion that needs to happen about, about Malaysian football and financial disparity, but that we can save that for another day. But purely from a from a bureaucratic efficiency point of view, Kelantan did not act in time to register their foreign players within the FIFA international transfer system. And that is costing them to suffer a lot on the pitch because they can't play some of their best players to 
help them at least alleviate. Nobody expects these foreign players to help them, you know, win the league, but to alleviate the burden when they go up against big teams. And, and, right sorry, now, the, they, and these foreign players are also still on contract and being paid, presumably. Yeah, yeah, they have to be paid. They, yeah. They've signed the contract, but they can't be registered. Mm. And that's a waste. And so the, the young Kelantan boys, young players who are largely inexperienced, are being made to to deal, to, to bear the brunt of their owners and their management's mistakes. And I and I really felt so bad for the for the goalkeeper on the day. So that was the other one that happened. And I'll leave it to Azran to talk about uh, the other astonishing thing, which was on Saturday night, the electric game between Kedai and JDT, which, by the way, has finally, uh, you know, it finally means that JDT will not complete a perfect season because they finally dropped the point this year. Aswan, did you watch it? Yes, I did. We spoke about last week when we wanted to celebrate JDT conceding. In fact, man, they conceded three. It was Kedah Darul Aman three, JDT three. And what a game it was. I think Kishi saw it herself. I was hoping that Kedah would have kept to their lead because they did lead twice. They led 2-0 uh, and um, unfortunately JDT showed the strength of JDT which is to come back and it was a fair point I would say. A very, very good game. We want to see more of this. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, Again, similarly, I feel for Kelantan. Uh, I feel for the fact, especially Kelantanese fans and their players because already there's a huge financial disparity and when you have to pay for players that you can't even play, um, it doesn't do anybody any justice. You know? So, Finally, we get to see JDT being humans after all. Uh, but another game, uh, Keish, you forgot about your home team uh, being... I'm not going to mention there. that, Ashran. I'm not going to mention <laughs> that. We're going to wipe that off the record completely. <laughs> because Perak lost 4-0 at home to KL, who's showing a great, great, great resurgence second half of the season. Hopefully, we'll see another fairy tale run in the Malaysia Cup. Again, either for KL or for any other team. Kedah, unfortunately, has been knocked out, right, Keish? So, they can't do a fairy tale run in the Malaysia Cup now. But... We want to see somebody else besides JDT winning something, uh, hopefully, this season. I like how it's like a fairy tale run for everyone, and then it's just like fairy tale run and JDT. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, but can I ask Can I ask you though, uh, uh, Keish, I think you might know this better. Uh, so I just watched this uh, documentary about this uh, American college football team, and they, they were mm. like staggeringly successful and then suddenly plunged into absolute abject failure because. Mm. While they were successful, they became more afraid of not losing mm. as opposed to winning. They 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 actually became emotionally, psychologically fragile whilst mm. winning. Mm. Could such a thing, do you think, happen to JDT? I I wouldn't say so. Only, only because um, I get I get what happened on on Saturday will fuel a lot of these speculations and and you know potential narratives. But the reality is. It was just an off day for JDT. And even on an off day, they scored three at the Darul Aman Stadium, which is a, a ridiculously difficult place to go. Anyone who has been there, even as a fan, you would know that when that place is rocking, it is really difficult to to play uh, uh, you know, your usual style of football because the pitch is not exactly the greatest. The, the, the stadium atmosphere is loud. It gets packed. It feels dense. And, and it's a really horrible place to go and play your usual style of football. So... JDT falling in, 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 in that particular game, in that particular stadium, was a one-off. Uh, I think they'll be up and running again the following game. They'll be bouncing back. I think JDT's biggest focus is not even the Liga Super anymore. They, they've got their eyes on the Champions League, which, by the way, the draw happened last Thursday. So that's actually the other big news. JDT uh, have been grouped in Group I of the Asian Champions League. And they've got Ulsan Hyundai and Kawasaki Frontale from Japan and Korea both of whom they were in the same group with last year. Uh, 
And at the same time, the more interesting part is JDT are in the same group with BG Patum. And BG Patum are one of the best teams in Thailand. And they've got uh, two of Fandi Ahmad's son, Iksan and Irfan, Irfan Fandi, who are playing there. At the same time, they've got two of Thailand's most decorated players, Tirasil Dangda and Chanatip Songkrasin. So it's a real, it's Southeast Asian royalty, really. BG Patum versus Johor Darul Takzim. So that's, I think that's where the focus is for JDT at the moment. And that's starting next month. I still feel really sorry for the Kelantan fans. Yeah. I mean, they have one of the largest fan bases, don't they? And and Sean, I'm sure you understand, as a Manchester United fan, what it's like to, you know, you know be one of the great successes and then to crash out like that. Um, <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of this week's show. And uh, well, thank you very much to Sean Mahotra. Thank you. Thank you. I hope everyone has a great week, especially enjoy Madeka Day, everyone, on Thursday. Uh, see you guys next week, hopefully. <laughs> yep. And uh, Asran Rosane. Team here. It's been a pleasure. Salam Arimadeka, everyone, and hope to see Liverpool playing with 11 men this time around this weekend. And Krishnan Sundaresan. Yes, uh, Salamat Arimadeka again to everyone. Enjoy the football, both local and internationally. There's a lot coming up. Uh, the Malaysian national team is off to play China and Syria as well, coming soon. So there's a lot to look forward to. And myself, Cam Rasan, and also thank you to our producer, Daryl Ong. And uh, we'll see you all on Friday on another episode of Just for Kicks on BFM 89.9. Football tune in Mondays and Fridays at 8 p.m. Just for kicks on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.